<laughs> Good morning. Uh, I'm Paul Baker, and Amanda asked some of us to stand here and communicate the wonder of science to the audience. <laughs> what was she thinking? <laughs> In a lecture, really? How do you demonstrate wonder? Well, honestly, day-to-day uh, -day science is more about work than wonder. When I was in astronomy, I spent more time dealing with hardware and software problems than the wondrous heavens above, like uh, Kelly Fast pictured here. She's an astronomer locally at Goddard Space Flight Center. Nevertheless, uh, wonder there is, and wonder drove me and drives others into science. I'll try to illustrate with parts of my own story. We had clear skies growing up on Long Island, New York, and I was a backyard astronomer. That planted the seeds for a subsequent choice of my PhD, but only after many other steps. Is this sound working okay? Okay, good. As a young person, I loved building things, especially radios and electronic gadgets. Uh, there was wonder in that. The magical wonder of action at a distance as a magnetic field pull, pulls things around. The animation of motor-driven toys. And the communication with shortwave radio across the globe that had no internet. And I had the knowledge that electronics played a role in the major advances in physics of the time. Electronics was a rapidly developing field, and the velocity of events was exciting, and the results were full of wonder. That convinced me to start studying with the intention of being an electrical engineer. However, I started to wonder, how does a transistor work? And this is just a very, very high-level overview for those of you who know it. Uh, it's a miracle of solid-state electronics, and it works. Uh, thoughts like that led down the primrose path to the study of physics rather than engineering. That wonder in nature de derailed my engineering career. Uh, so next I went to graduate school at Cornell to study more physics and really understand solid-state electronics. Now, the thing to realize about graduate school is that it's not a good place for a generalist. You need to pick a, pick a particular research direction from the few subfields that are currently active in that department. Now, Cornell was a good place for solid-state physics, and I made a good choice, I thought. The work there, when I got there, involved contemplating arcane mathematical equations at a desk or poking away at a perfect isotopically pure calcium chloride crystal in a laboratory. I was bored by both, frankly. <laughs> I missed the fun of building a complex device and using it to explore the world like I had in my backyard. I should have been an engineer. Uh, as an aside, I should admit, that damn crystal gave somebody a Nobel Prize just a few years later. <laughs> the boredom, in retrospect, was in my own attitude. Someone else saw wonder in the mystery of vibrations ringing through a quantum mechanical crystal lattice. Now, doesn't that sound Star Trek, huh? Anyhow, there were two other open doors at Cornell at the time, but the door to high-energy physics led down a very long path because Cornell's electron accelerator was obsolete and the replacement was going very, very slowly. But Cornell also had a unique radio telescope. It was built into the landscape in Puerto Rico near the town of Arecibo. The Arecibo telescope served also as a radar that mapped the surface of nearby planets. And it worked as the world's largest open hearth microwave oven 
They actually used it to cook the ionosphere with microwaves and watch the atmosphere respond. I started my talk telling you that I made my choices based on wonder at nature. But there is that other big factor, the tool use, the toys you get to play with. There are wonderful tools for scientists to use in their work. That Arecibo telescope I showed a thousand feet across is a good example. Now, here's a third point that influenced my choices in my work. I need to mention it. When you meet a good scientist, and the scientist loves their work, their wonder, their enthusiasm is contagious. It changes your choices. I have to say that uh, Frank Drake Cornell um, changed my career direction. He was a great teacher. He lectured enthusiastically about all the new areas of astronomy that were being opened up by radio and radar technology. Technology I had come to Cornell already knowing and loving. At the end of that course, I was hooked. I decided to pursue a PhD in astronomy. I finished my master's in physics at Cornell and departed for Berkeley. Now at Berkeley, the influence of other scientists on my work was even more profound. During this time and my remaining years of full-time science, I enjoyed guidance, interaction, and help from many prominent scientists. Two of the people on that list had Nobel Prizes. Four of the six ran astronomy departments or large research groups, which amplified their impact on the field. All were as enamored with the wonder of nature as they were as children. All showed their enthusiasm openly, and all worked with me to try and drag me along the same trail that they had gone so successfully, and of course I wasn't quite as good a student as they had been, but so it goes. Now, to be blunt, enthusiasm about science comes with an entrance charge. In high school, my little telescope, and oh my goodness, this is all washed out, but what it's showing is two stars that are part of a binary system, and they're different colors. In my backyard, my little telescope collected enough light that the color receptors of my eyes lit up in the dark. And I could see the beautiful, intense colors of stars, particularly when nature paired them together for our comparison and enjoyment. On the other hand, I could not measure the velocity of stars in my backyard, nor detect the chemical composition or see how the heavens are held together by physical laws. I could not see directly the size and scale of the universe. That takes measurements with expensive spectroscopes, and the inside of mathematical equations. You do need to know stuff to understand what you and others are actually doing in science and to uncover the deep wonder of the universe. I started my talk telling you I made my choices based on wonder at nature. But there's another big factor, and that is tool use. The toys you get to play with. They're, well, sorry, I'm going back over the same thing because I Okay, where is the final slide? This will be interesting. Okay. Just as a small example, here's one picture I took with the Arecibo telescope after I got the PhD. It is showing atomic hydrogen in a galaxy, that is, in what we call the Milky Way. The structure you may see from your seats, uh, I think barely, are the spiral arms of our spiral galaxy. Uh, these were well known at the time. My research contribution from these observations is impossible to see without blowing up little sections. And in those sections, you can see uh, cold clouds of hydrogen gas against the general glow of warm background hydrogen. My partner and I could nail down many physical parameters of the gas using mathematics. 
The size and quality of that data set was unique at the time, and I thought it was all wonderful. Still do. Uh, so to summarize, there is, it is wonderful to observe and marvel at nature using advanced scientific tools. Those tools are wonders in themselves and a tribute to our human creativity. Finally, there is the shared wonder in science. It is a community, an extremely competitive and sometimes unfair community, but a community that views the created world with a sense of wonder. I'll leave you with that. Thank you. Hi, I'm Barbara Searle, and uh, today I'm going to talk to you about the role that science and particularly biology has played in my life. I spent only five or six years working in a laboratory doing experiments, but my fascination with living things not only survived that experience, which was not terribly rewarding for me, but has flourished and today forms the centerpiece of my life. I need to start back in my early days. I was not one of those kids you just heard about, <laughs> who shows either an interest or an aptitude in science. I didn't wander around, or I didn't try to build things, and my passion was reading. I devoured books of all kinds, but mostly fiction, not having much to do with science. However, my father was a biology teacher and he did his best to interest me in the outdoors. Oh, I have to tell you about the nature walks. No, I don't want to tell you about the nature walks. <laughs> I was bored out of my gourd. Okay. <laughs> However, he was friendly with the head of the biology department in my high school, and that made all the difference. This man, whose name was Dr. Brandwine, was quite a remarkable and ambitious person. At the time I entered high school in 1944, a new kind of contest was established by Westinghouse Corporation. It was called the Science Talent Search. And Dr. Brandwine decided that one way to make his mark was to groom students to be winners of this contest. So he recruited all the smart kids he could find. And since he knew my father, I was one of the first to be recruited. Dr. Brandwine created a laboratory where his student recruits acted as his assistants. We maintained cultures of small creatures like amoeba and paramecium, and we helped him prepare classroom demonstrations. Then when we finished taking the sophomore biology course, which of course we took with him, then he gave us each a project to work on in our own time. The project he chose for me played a decisive role in sparking my interest in genetics and hence in all my further educational adventures. In order to tell you the rest of the story, I need to tell you some details of this project. I used an organism that was just at that time becoming a favorite of the geneticists, the fruit fly. My brother tells, loves to tell stories about how I worked on fruit flies in the basement and somehow they found their way up into the living room and the dining room and settled on the food and all that kind of stuff. He thinks it's very funny. Uh, so do you remember the story we heard at the beginning of the month about the little girl who found where butterflies came from? This was a story that uh, was read to us by Tony Nam? Somebody, I don't remember. In the course of that platform, we learned that many insects start life as a fertilized egg, which then quickly turns into the next stage called the larva. 
A larva is a worm-like creature that grows and eats and eats and grows. At just the right time, the larva stops eating, spins a cocoon, and becomes a pupa. Inside the cocoon, remarkable changes take place. The larval tissue is broken down, and small groups of cells that were inactive in the larva begin to grow and form a completely new shape, which we call the adult. I just want to point out to you that all of the material that the, the insect uses to make the adult is the broken down material of the larva. I mean, it's just extraordinary what these things do. When this transformation is complete, the adult breaks out of the cocoon and flies away, ready to mate, lay eggs, and start the process all over again. So how does this happen? Biologists are still studying this transformation, which becomes more and more awesome the more we learn. I also need to tell you something about where things stood in the field of genetics. Remember, this was the 1940s. Scientists didn't even know that the genetic material was DNA. But there had to be some kind of material that carried information from one generation to the next, and they called this stuff genes. The reigning picture was that genes were beads on a string, and the strings were in the chromosomes. Clever scientists found ways to change genes, and they tracked these changes by finding changes in the adult organism. So, one treated fruit fly eggs with x-rays, and lo and behold, some of the flies that grew into adults from these eggs were different. They called what they were doing causing mutations. But they had no idea what happened in between causing the mutation and finding the changed adult. They developed methods for learning about inheritance by studying the patterns of traits in the adults. But they put all the stuff in between. That is, what happened between the change in the gene and the change in the adult in a black box. And they agreed to ignore it. It was just too difficult to understand. The project Dr. Brandwine gave me addressed the question of what was actually going on in that black box. Instead of irradiating a fruit fly egg to cause a change that would be inherited, I manipulated the environment while the larva was developing to pinpoint exactly where in the development process the change happened. For those of you who know about these things, I was producing phenocopies. I was absolutely fascinated. My enthusiasm somehow communicated itself to the judges of the science talent search, and I won a top prize. I should tell you that I won the top prize for girls. <laughs> People were not sure that if they allowed the girls and the boys to compete together that the girls would ever win any kind of a prize at all, so they separated us out. And I am happy to announce that this year, the top winner of the science talent search was a girl. Okay, yay. So, having won this big prize, it seemed as if my future was assured. I majored in biology in college, and then went straight to graduate school and earned a PhD. My dissertation work didn't exactly address the question my high school uh, project raised, but I worked around the periphery of it. And from that time until now, Unpacking the processes that go on in the black box has been a part of the biology, the part of biology that has fascinated me most. It has exploded into an area 
that is now called molecular genetics. Excuse me. However, the deeper I got, the better I began to understand that being a scientist required more than curiosity about a question. As you have already heard from Paul, science requires tools and fascination with these tools and methods, as well as with questions. And furthermore, it requires patience and skill with manipulating things. It became increasingly clear to me that I had none of these capabilities or interests. So much of discovery of depends upon inventing new methods for exploring processes or new ways of using already invented tools. So after a two-year postdoc, that's what you do after you get your doctorate, working in a wonderful lab, I quit cold turkey. Actually, I was married and pregnant, which gave me some cover. And I spent the next 45 years doing other things. Eventually, I ended up working in international development, and my last professional employer was the World Bank. During those years, I continued to read all sorts of things, including lots of science. After I retired from the World Bank, I found OLLI, the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. It's what I call the old people teaching the old people. Each semester, we have a long list of courses and a huge group of students. We actually teach each other. For the past six or seven years, I have been teaching biology courses, deepening my own knowledge as I struggle to keep up with the extraordinary discoveries that seem to come virtually daily and find, I find that my enthusiasm is catching. I have found a way to be a scientist that doesn't require working in the lab. What could be more perfect? My students tell me that I am enriching their lives opening up areas of interest that they thought were forever closed to them because they didn't have the background, whatever that is. I also started the biology reading group here at West and we're reading some fascinating books, mostly about biology. In fact, even Amazon has my number. I recently got a solicitation addressed to armchair scientists. <laughs> so what have I learned? Becoming a laboratory scientist is indeed demanding and requires a range of skills and interests. Learning about science is available to us all. It is not only fascinating, but will be a required capability in our increasingly technological world. We can all do it. Well, good morning. I'm David Lindsay. Awe of science. Well, I guess it must start in childhood if you're ever going to feel it. Um, I can remember being a child on vacation at the beach and noticing how different the beach was between high and low tide and asking my father, uh, how come? And he said, well, believe it or not, it's because of the moon. I had to believe him, but uh, <laughs> I have to say I felt pretty awed. How could something so far away have such an effect on the Earth? Uh, why couldn't I feel the moon pulling on me? Why isn't there just one high tide under it each day instead of two? And these uh, actually are questions that are still challenges to explain to children, but it did make me aware that there are reasons for things and there are invisible effects operating all around us, and they may not always be obvious. The, uh, the technical details uh, can certainly be challenging, as Paul and uh, Barbara have, uh, have said, but learning them is part of the awe. One can admire uh, the colors of a rainbow, for example, but uh, there was a satisfaction in really understanding the optics behind it. 
why uh, a rainbow is just the size it is, why the longest wavelength colors are on the outside, why the sky appears brighter inside the bow, and why it appears fixed in the sky when, it hover, when it, uh, you see it in the sky, but hovers right in front of you when you see it in the spray from the hose. And some awesome ideas can come from uh, critical thinking. I remember around the time of Sput the Sputnik launch, uh, I was old enough to uh, tell my father some things. I, I informed him about Kepler's uh, third law, that uh, the time it takes a satellite to orbit the Earth increases with its distance from uh, 90 minutes just above the atmosphere to 28 days at the distance of the moon. And he thought for a minute and said, well, then there must be some distance where it would take 24 hours. And I agreed this seemed reasonable. And then he said, well, that would mean it would stay about the same location on Earth, just hanging there in the sky without any support. And I didn't feel so confident about this and said, um... <laughs> and he added, you could just drop a rope from it down to the ground and climb up into space. <laughs> well, he seemed uh, sceptical, but uh, he was basically right. If you had a strong enough rope, you could do that. And uh, he had inadvertently reinvented the geosynchronous satellite and the space elevator uh, described in the 1970s. So all this stimulated my interest in science. I was uh, bored by learning of the immensity of space and the possibility of other intelligences in it. As Arthur Clarke said, either we're all alone in the universe or we're not. And either way, the thought is quite terrifying. But the, uh, the distances involved are so vast, it doesn't seem we could ever traverse them without warp drives, wormholes, or other science fiction devices. Unless one could imagine uh, building self-contained spacecraft on which beings could live their entire lives without going so crazy, perhaps for many generations as they travel. But what would it take to reproduce the richness of living on Earth? The question uh, really makes you consider what humans need for satisfaction. I was intrigued by proposals for these uh, enormous cylindrical habitats in space, uh, suggested by O'Neill. Uh, they'd rotate to create normal gravity on their walls, and they'd have enough area to contain Manhattan, complete with Central Park, curving overhead like the scene in the movie uh, Inception. I think New York rolled up into a tube and shot off into space. But people might be able to live there for uh, quite a time. Clark also described the idea of a mechanical replicator, a little device that would use the materials around it to build a copy of itself, which would cause its numbers to grow exponentially. He described dropping such a device on Jupiter to convert the entire atmosphere in a matter of days, densifying the planet and igniting nuclear fusion to create a second sun. I found it quite awesome and uh, not a little frightening to think of intelligence able to have such effects. And not really so far-fetched. After all, the, uh, the three-pound uh, brain of man did uh, conceive of the hydrogen bomb. So these are rather grandiose ideas, but there is also awesomeness in complexity. For example, uh, the details that we've learned about life processes and the genetic code that Barbara was describing, the uh, extraordinary variety and effectiveness of uh, living forms, and all generated just by removing the losers. If, <laughs> If you're ever in Arizona, uh, I recommend a visit to Biosphere 2. It's uh, quite a heroic effort to model nature in a self-contained uh, habitat with a population of humans. And I have to say it failed, dismally, <laughs> suggesting that we just don't understand enough about the complexity of microorganisms in uh, fundamental life processes. But I think it's an important challenge that we should try it again because of uh, what we would learn and make us more appreciative of uh, our world. 
So I became a mathematician, and uh, I worked at Hewlett-Packard to uh, develop some of the first electronic calculators. These have uh, since become so common, it's difficult to uh, really appreciate how awesome such a device would have appeared a century ago. Most uh, science and engineering done before 1950, which includes uh, bridges, uh, buildings, machinery, airplanes that we still use, was computed by hand with math functions like logarithms and trig functions looked up in tables. The calculator I worked on provided all these functions in a fraction of a second to ten digits, which would be the equivalent of having books of tables a mile long. And the way it did it uh, was even more remarkable. I've heard even technical people say, oh well, memory's so cheap it probably just stored lots of values. But no, this is not even remotely feasible. Calculators actually operate by recomputing each function value from scratch. And they don't do it by Taylor series, interpolation, or other uh, methods that you might find in textbooks. They use a pseudo-multiplication method that is unfamiliar to most computer scientists, which just shows how splintered our modern knowledge has become. So these calculator processes were really the first personal computers, and I wrote uh, many programs for them to uh, perform engineering functions for NASA, uh, solve math problems, play chess. That was actually something that was uh, turned into a commercial product. And while I was at HP, I met Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs before they left to uh, design the first Apple computer. And uh, I noticed one of them did all of the hardware design, construction, and programming, while the other did all the envisioning. <laughs> so uh, what ethical implications could we draw from our scientific and technological world? Well, to start with, it really makes us interdependent. We live in a world with uh, increasing dependence on our technology, but the details in each of the fields is really only known by a small fraction of the population. I think one reason is that our technology is becoming increasingly inaccessible. In the days of steam engines, people could see it function, but now much of it's invisible electronics whose workings have to be understood through theory. Factories or overseas or close to outsiders, products are built with sealed and unserviceable components, and people not only don't understand their technical world, they don't feel able to, don't see any need to, and actually don't feel a lot of curiosity or guilt about that. People say, oh, I was never any good at math, who would never say, oh, I was never any good at reading. <laughs> so should more people learn science? Well, I have to say, it seems a little hard to say we need more science and math graduates to stay competitive when so many of the ones we have uh, have enough difficulty finding uh, satisfactory employment and uh, often find that they're considered inferior to uh, management, financial, and legal talent. But I think there are deeper reasons for learning science than vocational benefits. At least in principle, science epitomizes uh, intellectual ideals, uh, being observant and open-minded, striving for accuracy instead of glossing over details, respecting knowledge over bombast, reason over edict, reflection over snap judgment, and these are really ethical values we should bring to other aspects of our lives. Also, in our democracy, there are many technical issues we are asked to have an opinion on, and it's better for it to be informed than manipulated by rhetoric. Everyone wants to avoid pollution, extinction of animals, disruption of climate, and so on, but people also demand cars, private yards, air conditioning, modern appliances, cheap energy, unrestricted family size, and a way to make a living. We can't simply obstruct all of these industries that are formed in response to our demands. We have to figure out a way to design a sustainable world, and doing this requires an informed understanding of how our technological world operates. 
And it doesn't all have to be inaccessible high-tech to inspire awe. Even the, uh, the commonest artifacts around us, the chairs, the doors, the windows in this room, use designs that were first devised by our ancestors, uh, technologists thousands of years ago, using metal ores from the metal, Middle East, glass developed by the Phoenicians, refined with mathematics from the uh, Indians and Arabs, science and engineering from the Europeans, plastics and techniques from American scientists, and probably all made by Chinese manufacturers now. Science and technology really unifies us across culture, geography, and history. And it's an extraordinary achievement of our species that we should be proud and awed by. Thank you.